0: Welcome to the Read Side-by-Side podcast titled An Open Dialogue About State Assessment. This podcast is led by Sarah Collins and Bethany Robinson and recorded March 18th, 2016. In this podcast, we will focus on looking at the Smarter Balanced assessment, answering questions, where did this testing come from? What can the test hope to claim about reading comprehension? What is the validity and reliability of the Smarter Balanced assessment? And how should classroom instruction prepare students for these tests? Bethany, I'm not sure if people understand the relationship between the Common Core Standards and the state tests. I'm not sure if they fully understand how the Common Core Standards came to be and how the state assessments came to be. Can you start us off with an overview of the timeline of the adoption of these pieces? Certainly. So in the 1990s is when most of the states adopted their own state standards. And at that point, each state had their own version. So whether you were in Washington, California, New York, um, those standards looked different from state to state. In 2007, the governor's associations started to talk about designing and implementing state standards that could be used across states. In April of 2009, they started the Common Core Standards Initiative, which was basically the Governor's Association working together to create these common state standards. So the work really was state-led. August of 2009, however, the federal government um, chose to make a requirement for the Race to the Top grant that included an adoption of Common Core state standards. So basically, Arne Duncan announced that there would likely be a requirement for Common Core state standards adoptions for states who wanted to apply for Race to the Top grant. So that was actually the first time that the federal government got involved. That's correct. And that was an offering of grant money for their state if they adopted the standards? Well, basically, states would have to apply for Race to the Top funds, and they could only apply for those funds if they agreed to adopt the Common Core state standards. So it became very important for states to start to look into the possibility of adopting the new standards that were not designed by the federal government at all, but by the Association of Governors, but it was a requirement to get those federal monies that they wanted to get with the Race to the Top funds. So Kentucky, um, they adopted right away in February of 2010, knowing that They wanted to get those Race to the Top funds for their state. And that was even before there was a public draft um, shared. So Kentucky got on board right away. Wow. The draft didn't come out until a month later. So March of 2010 was when the Common Core State Standards Initiative published and made public their draft of the Common Core State Standards There was a lot of kind of unrest and questions about the feds requiring um, connection to Common Core in order to get these Race to the top funds. So um, just a few months after having announced that they were going to make it mandatory, in May of 2010, they came back on Duncan announced that the Department of Ed was going to, instead of making it mandatory for states to adopt Common Core, they would change that to States would get bonus points towards this grant if they did adopt Common Core state standards. So states would be turning in this application and different parts of the application had different sets of points awarded. And of course, the more that you had in your application that looked strong and focused on the areas the grant was looking for, the better chance that you would have to receive these funds, and so bonus points um, were awarded for adopting Common Core. Uh, The final document came out in June of 2010, and many states got on board at that point. By September of 2010, we had 31 states who had adopted officially the Common Core State Standards and of course, when they make that decision to adopt, because we were a No Child Left Behind at that point, they were also required to show how they were going to monitor whether students were performing at those standards. And so all those states were required to say how they were going to assess that. And so assessment talk began, and the U.S. Department of Ed gave monies to two consortiums who would begin designing assessments that states could then use to monitor whether students were making standard in Common Core. So why did they pick two consortiums? Why didn't they just create one test? Well, the federal government didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket. This was quite a big undertaking to create Um, these next generation assessments, and so to give just one uh, group the money to work on the test and then have it fail would be catastrophic. So they wanted to make sure that they had two different consortiums working on the project simultaneously, so that if one failed to produce a quality assessment, there would still be another one in the works that could perform. So the two consortiums established in September 2010 were the PARC and the Smarter Balanced Consortium. Is that correct? Uh Uh-huh. These consortiums, um, states could choose to come in and be a part of those consortiums as either governing members or as affiliate members. Uh, For the most part, states on the western side of the United States became heavily involved in Smarter Balanced Assessment Consortium, and states on the east and southern uh, part of the United States often got involved in the PARC. So, Bethany, you said that the federal government awarded grant money to two consortiums, PARC and Smarter Balance, for them to create these assessments. It's now 2016. Is federal money still being used to support those consortiums? No longer is there federal money um, going into those consortiums. The money began in September of 2010, and those grant monies ended September of 2014. So there was $330 million that was placed into these two consortiums. So each consortium got half of that pot. And they were given um, four years where they would be given the monies to facilitate that design process. So when I think about these new tests and what it would take to put something of this caliber together, it really sounds like this is a big undertaking. Did they give them enough money and enough time to really put together a high quality assessment? Well, that's a good question, and I think that's still one that we need to explore. This was actually the biggest undertaking in assessment design in U.S. history, and it was given four years um, to get that undertaking accomplished. That really doesn't seem like very much time. It really isn't. There was so many different pieces that were involved in this assessment. Not only was it trying to go deeper from just a basic multiple-choice assessment to um, evaluating deeper thinking. Uh, it has many interfaces, uh, working on a technological platform that schools may or may not be ready for. Uh, so this was a very big test design process and the consortiums couldn't get this done alone and they knew that from the beginning. So there was some partnering that happened right away. Smarter Balanced Assessment partnered with McGraw-Hill And Park Assessment partnered with Pearson. So these are large publishing companies who already have assessment banks designed and ready to go. Um, Each of these had somewhere around 10,000 test questions and probes already in a database ready to go. And so when Smarter Balanced and Park got connected to these companies, McGraw Hill and Pearson, They now have access to those banks of assessment questions and probes that they can now um, tweak and rework to match these um, Smarter Balanced uh, claims, content specifications, or the PARC claims and content specifications. So they really took probes that were already in place and just redesigned them or or reworked them to match with our Common Core standards. In a way, that's correct. Each assessment came up with a claim of what they wanted to be able to say students could do if they passed this assessment. Those claims were based on evidences that they designed. Those evidences are the content specifications and the question stems those were designed based on the Common Core State Standards. Now, they aren't copied and pasted right from the standards. The standards weren't designed for an assessment. So what they did was they looked at this assessment, or the Common Core State Standards, that is, and they designed content specifications that took wording from there, possibly elaborated on added or omitted parts of the standards to create these content specifications. So let's transition into talking about the Smarter balance Assessment and its purpose. The federal government requires states to use data pulled from this assessment to report to parents whether their child is meeting grade-level standards. In this case, we're talking about our Common Core standards. Yes. So if I'm a parent and I get a report from the state telling me that my child has met standard, what does that mean? What can the Smarter Balance claim? So the Smarter Balance claim for reading is that students can read closely and analytically to comprehend a range of increasingly complex literary and informational texts. So it's a pretty broad claim. It basically lets you know whether or not your students have reading comprehension at an analytical level. And that is really all that our assessments of reading comprehension can measure, is an overall claim. We know that research long ago revealed that reading comprehension tests can only measure that single factor. Tests cannot measure multiple skills or strategies. They measure a single global one, reading comprehension. And so when you look at the design of Smarter Balanced and you read that claim, students can read closely and analytically to comprehend a range of increasingly complex literary and informational text. That is what they can tell you about your student, whether they can do that or not at grade level standard. The evidences that that claim is based on is alignment of questions on the test with the standards, but the testers cannot claim any diagnostics of whether students can answer, say, main idea questions or cause and effect questions better um, than other strategies like compare and contrast or... Well, so wait a minute. So let's say I have a student who is taking the assessment and there's a specific question on the assessment about main idea. So maybe it says, what is the main idea of this passage? If the student gets it wrong, you're saying that that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't understand the concept of main idea. How can that be? Well, that's exactly it. Reading comprehension is very complex. And so if a student read a passage about baseball, for example, and then they were asked a question that related to the main idea of the passage, just because they got it wrong does not mean that the main idea part of their brain wasn't working, as Timothy Shanahan says. It could be that the passage was long, and maybe they couldn't, read all the way through it That something about that passage was too hard and so it was more of a confidence problem that they couldn't get through the passage and make sense of it because one extra long passage it may not be the main idea issue it may be the length or possibly their reading speed was really slow and maybe they didn't even get to get to this item and so it was scored incorrectly. Or possibly their ability to decode or get the words off the page was limited. And so they couldn't grasp the main idea because of a decoding issue. Or even it could have been unknown vocabulary words. Maybe they didn't know what a triple play was or something that involved those baseball terms. And so they can't just come up with the key idea or the main idea because they have the no vocabulary. There's no way for us to tease out why they missed that main idea question. Wow. This is really a shift then because it seems that lately the focus has been on pulling out individual skills and strategies so that we can intervene with students on a particular skill that they may be struggling with. But what you're telling me is that assessments really can't name explicit Specific strategies or skills that a student's struggling with, that it actually has more to do with the passage itself. Mm-hmm. That's correct. In a reading comprehension test, we cannot diagnose. Uh, reading comprehension is just too complex. Um, the ACT report of 2006 revealed this very clearly. Um, it showed that when they looked at the scores of students on the ACT test, and they pulled out the question types. That question types didn't explain whether students performed well or poorly on that test. They tried to look at various categories of questions and found that the lowest kids could answer 20% of the main idea and detail questions, 20% of the generalizing questions, 20% of the compare and contrast, and when they got better in one, they automatically got better in the other. So there was no distinguishing factor to show that one particular type of strategy or skill kept students from being skilled readers. What did make the difference in their performance on the test was actually the complexity of the passage itself. When they looked at the passages and sorted them by less complex and more complex, they found that kids could answer any of the questions related to an easy passage. In other words, if I read an easy passage that I have background knowledge in, I can answer main idea. I can answer compare and contrast. I can answer cause and effect. But give me a complex passage it's long or has complex sentence structure or is outside of my background knowledge and vocabulary, then I can't answer main idea, cause and effect, and compare and contrast. It isn't that I don't understand what main idea is, it's that I can't apply it in a text that's too complex. So it really changes the way we look at assessment and instruction. Yes. Yes. Bethany, you spoke about background knowledge and how it helps students access complex text. How does background knowledge ease reading comprehension? Well, basically it gives you cognitive edge. It allows you to get to deeper comprehension. An inference is taking what's in the text and your own background knowledge and putting that together to help you read between the lines something that all authors do. They leave things out um, so they don't have to be so wordy and expect you to do some reading between the lines. If you have background knowledge going into a passage, say, about baseball, you understand how the game is played, you might even know things like what a triple play is, then putting together and comprehending that text is so much easier because of that background knowledge. Mm -hmm. You also are going to remember the passage better because you're connecting it to things that are already stored in your brain. So when you're taking a in new information and connecting it to information you already have, it's easily retrieved. Mm-hmm. And then finally, that comprehension frees up your working memory so that you have more capacity to do deep thinking and problem solving related to the passage, which is exactly what Smarter Balanced and the PARC assessment are asking students to do. They're not about thinking about surface-level explicit questions. These tests are about getting to deeper thinking. And the only way that students can get to deeper thinking is if they have the comprehension, the larger working memory space, to be able to do that deep thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, this conversation reminds me of when I worked for the state with a federal reading grant I was assigned to go out to various schools and make sure that they weren't cheating on the test that they were required to do to receive the grant funds. And so I was assigned various schools to go out and I had to, when I arrived, say, I'm here to do some rechecks on your assessment. I randomly pulled about 20 kids and reassessed them to make sure that there wasn't Uh, scores being turned in that were inflated or wrong. So, oh, they loved me when I showed up. But basically, um, as I traveled around the state and went to various schools, it was a reading passage that students were reading out loud to me. And I found that when I went to one school that was in a very rural setting far from the ocean... (laughs) They had to read the Sandcastle's passage to me, and the kids did terribly on that particular passage. Then the next week, I was assigned to go up to a school that was right on a beautiful lake, and those students did very well on the Sandcastle's passage, and it occurred to me that it was actually their background knowledge that caused them to do poorly or very well on this fluency assessment. Sure. Because the students by the lake had spent all summer building sandcastles. Absolutely, The students there had so much experience with sandcastles, they took that background knowledge and experience into the test, whereas those students in the rural area far from the ocean had never been to the beach, had never built a sandcastle themselves, and so when they read the passage, they were making meaning as they went and it slowed them down and they struggled more with the comprehension of that passage. Mm -hmm. So Bethany, if the results of assessments like the one you mentioned are so varied across populations, how do we know that the Smarter Balanced assessment is reliable and valid? That's an important question. And first I'd like to define reliable and valid. So a test is considered reliable if the same result occurs across different conditions. So from one administration of the test to the next. Validity refers to how accurately the test measures what it sets out to measure. In the case of Smarter Balanced, the ability to read increasingly complex text with comprehension. I'm going to Take us back a little bit to the timeline so that we can start to think about how reliable and valid this Smarter Balanced assessment is. So we know that the grant money was given and handed out between September of 2010 and spring of 2014. So we know we had a very short window for designing this assessment. The field test of the delivery system the technical um, aspects of the test was done in spring of 2014. Simultaneously, they were pilot testing the test items. So we had a field test of the delivery system, the technological part of the delivery of the test, as well as the test item pilot happening simultaneously, which isn't really recommended because it creates too many variables. So you're saying if a student does poorly on the assessment, you're not really sure whether it had to do with the items on the test or whether it had to do with the delivery system, the computer system. And so you can't really separate the two. Exactly. I don't know whether the child didn't pass that question because of technological issues or inability to use a computer or an, unable to use the tools create, associated with that computer component, or whether it was actually the test item themselves that was too hard for the student or possibly was defective or biased. Wow. Okay. So just after the field test, um, the money Ended. So the grant money ended. We did the field test in spring of 2014, and in September, the last check arrived. October 2014 was when the field test report was published. From that time, from the time of the field test report, we had a matter of months before the official testing began in spring of 2015. So in spring of 2015 was when... All schools were required to administer the Smarter Balanced assessment. All of the schools in the states that were part of the consortium, yes. This undertaking, this official testing that began in spring of 2015, occurred before any validity and reliability was conducted. There was no internal reliability and validity from Smarter Balance, nor was there any external an outside person looking at the validity and reliability of this assessment. At the time when the official test began, there was only a statistical model that estimated the reliability of the assessment. So what does the report, they published a report in October 2014, what did that report say about the reliability and validity of the assessment. The field test report of October 2014 focused heavily on the technical component and even said that if students did not have computer skill or an understanding of how to use those tools, it would greatly affect their score on the assessment. Then a year later, in October of 2015, was when the end of grant report came out that related back to the official test in spring of 2015. In that report, you learn that the consortium worked very hard to align the test to the questions um, to the Common Core State Standards and worked very hard to make the test accessible to all students. However, it said in that report that the test validation work is still something that they're planning to hopefully do in the future. So it was confirmed through that report that no validation had been done as of yet. And it went on to say that they have yet to establish and execute a validity plan. So in spring of 2015, after students had finished taking the official Smarter Balanced assessment across Smarter Balanced states, they had yet to come up with a plan to determine the reliability and validity of the assessment, is that right? That is correct. So at this time, can we claim that the Smarter Balanced Assessment is valid and reliable? Not at this time. So are there other factors that we should be looking at besides reliability and validity? Absolutely. The first that I would encourage people to look at is generalizability. Generalizability indicates the extent to which the assessment has been applied in a variety of populations. Tests that have been used on a larger scale are usually more generalizable. Now, Smarter Balance claims that because so many students participated in the pilot and the official test that it is generalizable. However, when looking at the map of the consortium states, I question whether enough minority students participated to prove generalizability. Another question too is important to consider is whether or not this assessment is culturally biased. Cultural bias in testing refers to a situation where the scores on the test are significantly higher or lower between cultural groups and are better able to predict the future performance of one cultural group than the rest of the population. Looking at the Washington State report card of the Smarter Balanced scores, I found that scores were significantly higher or lower between cultural groups. Um, I found that you could predict district's scores on the Smarter Balanced assessment based on the percentage of white students. Oh, wow. And I was able to do this with about 10% accuracy. In other words, the scores might be as far as 10% below their white population or 10% above their white population. But I could determine it within a margin of about 20%. That's that's really telling. Yes, it is. And the interesting thing was I looked at it for the state overall, and then I looked at it with urban schools, Um, suburban schools, and rural schools, and I found that this held true. I even looked at schools that had the same curriculum being used, and it continued to hold true in the data. So then, are you saying that the Smarter Balanced Assessment, then, is culturally biased? Well, really, any reading test could be considered culturally biased. What do you mean by that? Well, students who happen to have wide general knowledge, as those who happen to come from advantaged families usually do, have an unfair advantage on any reading test because passages are not aligned with the topics covered in school. If Smarter Balanced Assessments reading passages cover topics such as Babe Ruth, recycling water in space, how gravity strengthens muscles, and paper making, There is no way to know whether students have had exposure to these topics prior. Some students will have an advantage of background knowledge to give them a leg up, while others will have nothing. This is a really important point. To help us understand this further, I'd like to read an excerpt from an article by Edie Hirsch titled, There's No Such Thing as a Reading Test. Let's imagine you are a fourth grade boy in a struggling South Bronx elementary school sitting for a high-stakes reading test. Because the school has large numbers of students below grade level, it has drastically cut back on science, social studies, art, music, even gym, and recess to focus on reading and math. You have spent the year learning and practicing reading strategies. Your teacher, worried about her performance, has relentlessly hammered test-taking strategies for months. The test begins, and the very first passage concerns the customs of the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam. You do not know what a custom is. Neither do you know who the Dutch were, or even what a colony is. You have never heard of Amsterdam, old or new. Certainly it's never come up in class. Without background knowledge, you struggle with most of the passages on the test. You never had a chance. Meanwhile, across town, more fluent students take and pass the test with ease. They are no brighter or more capable than you are, but because they have general knowledge, as students who come from advantaged backgrounds so often do, the test is not much of a challenge. Those who think reading is a transferable skill and take background knowledge for granted may well wonder what all the fuss is about. Those kids and teachers in the Bronx struggle all year and fail to get ready for this? Why, all the answers are right there on the page. Do not blame the tests. Do not blame the test writers. It's unfair to blame the teachers. Let's not blame the parents. Bethany, where can we place the blame? Well, that would have to go towards the curriculum. In the Common Core State Standards, on page 33, it says that at a curricular or instructional level, texts within and across grade levels need to be selected around topics or themes that systematically develop the knowledge base of students. It goes on to say that within a grade level, there should be an adequate number of titles on a single topic that would allow children to study that topic for a sustained period. The knowledge children have learned about particular topics in early grade levels should then be expanded and developed in subsequent grade levels to ensure an increasingly deeper understanding of these topics. In other words, instead of focusing the English language arts block on known topics such as school, snow, and holidays, focus on topics that will expand students' background knowledge and possibly give them that academic topic background knowledge that's needed for the state test. So Bethany, we've learned that the Smarter Balanced assessment cannot claim that it is valid and reliable at this time. We also know that the cultural bias of the assessment is in question, yet teachers, knowing this, still have to implement the assessment this spring in their classroom. What can teachers do to turn this into a positive I would encourage them to read the article titled, How and How Not to Prepare Students for the New Tests by Timothy Shanahan. He explains that these tests should do a pretty good job of showing how well students can read and comprehend challenging texts on unpredictable academic topics without teacher support. And he goes on to say that we shouldn't focus on the question types, but instead on making students sophisticated and powerful readers. You might wonder how we're going to go about doing that, and he goes on to give us five steps for us to follow in our instruction. Step one is to have students read extensively with an instruction. He urges teachers to move away from a round-robin reading to accountable, silent reading within the English language arts block, but also in social studies, science, math lessons, etc., Step two is have students read increasing amounts of text without guidance and support. He says that it's essential that students gain extensive experience reading texts of length without teacher intervention in order to increase student stamina. Step three, make sure that texts are rich in content and sufficiently challenging. He warns that in the past, teachers have placed students in texts that are matched to their independent reading levels, but this is not the best way to enable students to handle more challenging texts like we might see on Smarter Balanced. He uh, encourages us to make sure that the texts we are using are significantly difficult, providing them with a scaffolding that will help them read texts that are at the top of their instructional range. Step four is have students explain their answers and provide textual evidence supporting their claims. In other words, he wants students to form opinions and make arguments but have textual evidence to always back that up. And finally, step five is to engage students in writing about texts, not just replying to multiple-choice answers. He goes on to say that writing summaries and syntheses of the texts that we read will be the best way to prepare for these assessments. Well, I love these action steps. Not only will they help close the gap, the achievement gap on our state assessments, I feel that more importantly, they will make students, like you said, sophisticated, powerful readers. Our company, Read Side by Side, provides curriculum based on Tim Shanahan's five action steps. We have a curriculum, the CIA curriculum for grades three through five, And this program focuses on increasing students' time in text. Well, I love these action steps. Not only will they help close the achievement gap on our state assessments, but more importantly, they will do what Tim Shanahan said. They will turn our students into sophisticated, powerful readers. And that's what our company, Read Side by Side, is really all about. We've created curriculum for classrooms grades 3 through 6 that align to these five Action steps. So the CIA curriculum produced by Read Side by Side focuses on spending time in text. So students spend 90 minutes a day in text. They read increasing amounts of text in accountable independent reading. And those texts focus on chapter books. So in that time, students will be reading chapter books that are at the top of their instructional range. These chapter books expose students to a variety of genres, topics, and themes, and students respond to the text both in daily conversation and also in daily formal writing. To learn more about this curriculum, please visit our website, readsidebyside.com. Thank you for your participation in today's podcast, and we look forward to providing more content for you in the future.